Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Sorry about that. Wait a second. One more. Okay, for some reason this one took all day. We just finished this, <laughs> as the Elbaz can tell you. Uh, there's no wasted time today. Uh, welcome for the last one. I uh, as always want to thank the Shoal. Tonight, as you can see, our sponsors are the Berlins in memory now. It was originally supposed to be an honor award not, not that long ago. As I'm sure everybody knows, Herman lost his uh, mother uh, very recently in the Schloschen. And as I was driving here, it's been a crazy and hectic day. As I was driving here, I was just uh, thinking, uh, we're dealing uh, tonight with all these Jewish communists and other types, which there are a zillion. And you wonder what kind of family they come up with, you know, with the group over here. Main job of a parent, I think, is twofold. You should, your, your, your job is to give your child a clear sense of identity and a clear sense of right and wrong. That's as far as I can see. If you're not good in either of those two, you got a problem. Kid turns out there's no guarantees, but I think it usually is a correlation. And uh, one thing I got from hearing his speech uh, online was that from Mrs. Rose Berlin, one of the founders of the show, a clear sense of identity, Jewish identity, and a clear sense of right and wrong. And that's why they're here today, and a lot of people are not. But since the hour is late, I won't wax eloquent. I'll get right into my remarks. But I do want to thank the sponsors. And today I really put the tech team to, to, to a great distress, and uh, there they are. Now, Baruch uh, Now, tonight is... Uh, the last lecture, name of the series is Poe, Lean, Poles, and Jews in 2018, trying to be friends, but prevented by different versions of a common history. And tonight is the sixth lecture called, Can We At Least Agree on the Facts? And the answer is no, Poles and Jews since the fall of communism. Uh, I took you last time, took a long time, to 43, middle of the war. And by 43, all the Jews were dead. The Germans had succeeded in, in, in what they wanted to do. Not all, but you know what I mean. Um, there were 3.3 million, about 3 million were dead. About 300,000, something like that, survived uh, by hiding or by passing. Uh, my mother did that in her country, or by escaping to the Russians. So the history of Poland, which I'm going to get into in a minute, in 43, 44, and 45, is not exactly a Jewish story, because there ain't no Jews. But it will contain a Jewish element, but in a very controversial way. I'm speaking now about Polish Jews, okay? I'm not speaking, for example, about Hungarian Jews who were killed in 44. That's a separate parsha, correct? 
Hitler went into Hungary is a totally separate matter in 1944 and 45. Uh, many Hungarian Jews, like the Kloisenberger Rebbe, <laughs> were uh, forced laborers in the, in the ruins of the Warsaw Ghetto. If you ever read the biography, you understand what I'm saying? It's in 44. It's a year after the Warsaw Ghetto was over. And in case there was anything left in terms of money or bodies, or whatever, they had Hungarian Jews as slave laborers, you know, working in the place of it. And, and then they shot a whole bunch of them. This is why the Kleinsburger Rebbe, God forbid, he did not come a Zionist, you know, but he became, but he used to be like Sommer. And, uh, and he changed. And everybody knew that it's because of the war. Okay? This is the Kotel. <laughs> okay? Now, um, that's a remarkable photograph, isn't it? This is right after the Six Day War, like in 68 or something like that. Now, um, by late 43, so let's get back to our narrative. After the Jews are gone, the Russian army, the Red Army, was battering away at the German army. Because I told you, after the two battles of first day of 43, Stalingrad and Kursk, so uh, the Germans were in retreat. But they were fighting like heck for every inch of the way. It was a bloody business, that Eastern Front. Okay, So little by little, the Russians are constantly pushing them back, but they're losing a lot of men. It's a bitter fights and all that stuff. By January 3rd, 44, you know, by the time you finish the end of 43, let's go to the next one. The Russian army got up to the old Poland. You follow what I'm saying? Now, the Russian army would start all the way back here, little by little, got to around here. Meaning the territories, they used to be in the old Poland. Until then, they're fighting in the Ukraine mainly, mainly and what we call Belarus. Uh, they hadn't reached, the, the, by the beginning of 44, they actually got to Baranovich if that name is familiar to anybody. And, uh, and all of a sudden, the Russian army's there. And uh, I want to be clear about this. The Russians got to the borders of Poland six months before D-Day. I mean, is that clear? I mean, you know, the Americans hadn't even landed in Europe. So the main World War II was fought by the Russian army. I mean, everybody knows that. Now, the Americans and the British did fight very hard. I'm not taking that away. But the main stuff was won by the Russian army. That is a fact. Now, um, in Poland, the Poles are making it in their pants. It's a nightmare. They're getting rid of Hitler, getting Stalin. Right? I mean, you can understand them. Uh, and to make matters worse, just at this very time, late 43, summer 43, or 44, the Ukrainians in eastern Poland, meaning, once, let's go back one, the Ukrainians in the old area, as I'm pointing over here, where, literally over here, Lemberg and such places, Tarnopol, it's really... Ukrainian territory with a lot of Poles living in the majority is Ukrainian. They decided to do another Khmelnytsky, Mamish, like 1648. Every once in a while they do that. And on Poles, this is not a Jewish thing. Okay? They just made a movie. I don't know if, I don't know if it'll come out. We'll see. Uh, now you have to have a strong stomach, but it's a movie. It's not real. So keep that in mind. Uh, the same thing you read about in the Yvain Mansoul in 1648. You pull people apart, you chop them in half with farming implements, you know, rakes and hoes and clippers and that kind of stuff. And uh, you slice women in half and uh, the pregnant and you burn children. Just what you read in the old books, that's happened. Now the Poles made this movie, like last year. It's called Volenia or Hatred. Let's see if any of it uh, works. Look at this. This is a, there was a mini genocide of Poles. Genocide carried out in Nazi-occupied Poland, which I just showed you in the map, by the Ukrainian army. What's the UPA? That's farmers. It's the Ukrainian militia, if you want to call it that. It's Khmelnytsky, literally. In the area of Volinia, Polisia, and Lublin region, eastern Galicia, 
beginning of 43 and lasting 45. So this is wonderful. Only in Eastern Europe do you have a war within a war. It's not enough that you have the Russians versus the Germans. That's not enough for you. No. We have to have a couple massacres here and there like a bonus. You see? This is where our ancestors lived. Most of the victims were women and children. The Ukrainian methods, particularly brutal victims being tortured, mutilated, 40, 60,000 here, 30, 40,000 there, 100,000 people and probably even more. Okay? Like I said before, the Poles, who were the victims, made a movie about this. Uh, let's see if, you, if, if, it, if it came out. If it didn't, it Kapitan Okay, fine. Right? Yeah, just either anyone. Turn the sound off. Yeah, you don't want to hear the sound. The uh, this is from a trailer or something. Right? Look, they're taking a Polish kid. They're wrapping up in grass and gonna burn a fire. It's a movie. It's not really happening. Remember that. But these kind of uh, look at that. And that's like Tuesday in 1943 in in the Ukraine. You get it? This is, I'll say it again, none of this involves Jews, because there weren't any, they're all dead. This is one group against another group, that's where it goes. 
There's a whole movie with it's two hours of this kind of stuff. It's a very interesting movie, but very two hours of business. Uh, the non-communist Poles, so let's put it this way, the whole Eastern Europe is, is crazy. You got the Russians fighting the Germans, you got the Polish patriotic home army, you got the Ukrainians versus the Poles, you got a similar situation, Ukrainians elsewhere fighting who, who knows what. Then in Belarus you have similar type of business, in Lithuania you have different type of business, so everybody's shooting at everybody. And if you're Jewish, there are stories about this, you know. It's, it's like it says in the Bible, the book of Almos, Amos. He said, you know, whoever avoided the bear got bit by the snake or something like that, you know. Meaning, how do you survive in this kind of an area? Uh, the non-communist Poles, which is easily 90%, I would be, without exaggeration, I bet it's 98%, right? Don't know what to do. They do not know how to pull the bone out of the throat of the lion without getting eaten. Well, remember the famous story of Aesop's fables. In the Gemara, they say, Rabbi Mayer used to say it, that the lion said, I have a bone in the throat. Whoever pulls it, I will get a, a reward. And the stork pulls out the bone, and they say, what's the reward? The reward is that you got out of the mouth of the lion. If you were able to tell people, I'm a bird, I stuck my head in the, in the throat of the lion, and I came out alive. Uh, the, the Poles, I understand their predicament. They just want to come out alive, right? They want to survive Hitler, survive Stalin. Nope, it doesn't work like that. They're going to get, they got rid of Hitler, or they're getting rid of Hitler, and they're going to get this, okay? So I want to emphasize to you, from their point of view, you know, World War II does not end happily. If you're us, or Westerners, or Jews, World War II had a happy ending. Now, there was a terrible price of six million people, so that's why it wasn't a happy ending. But at least the bad guys went away, and the good guys, the Americans won, as we say, and eventually got Israel, and so it, it knows it's, it's, it's a positive war. If you're in Eastern Europe, it's not a positive war. The war ended in defeat. They got a Hitler, and then they got Stalin, and nobody did anything about it. Do you, do you follow what I'm saying? So, um, and in many places, the Germans were not as bad as the Russians, so the Russians came later. So they don't like the Jewish narrative, because it, it, it doesn't work for them. I want you to understand that very much. And I'm speaking of a large part of the world today, now, um, to make matters worse, they developed a whole machlekes, I'll show you in a second, between Stalin on the one hand and the free, and the free Polish government in London on the others. And it's, it's almost funny, except your Polish is not funny. When nobody was looking, I showed you before, in early 1940, Stalin shot 30,000 people in the back of the head, the whole Polish officer corps. But they didn't tell anybody about it. They buried him in this, you know, place. And he thought this will be part of Russia forever. But then the Germans attacked the Russians. And therefore, for politics reasons, Stalin now has to become buddy-buddy with Churchill and the Americans. And that means you got to become buddy-buddy with the Poles, who he tried to wipe out not long ago. But he's a member of the Allies. So naturally, you know, so the Poles, Polish generals, the government people from London fly to Russia and they say like this, we have 30,000 names we're looking for. Stalin said, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> no, we have the names. You think I'm kidding, you'll see in a second. We have the names. Can't be. Lahadam, as they say, you know. No, 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 but where are they? I'm sure they left or maybe they went to Manchuria or something like this. They got caught, the hand in the cookie jar, okay? 
In December 1941, Stalin was trying to build a relationship not just with the Americans and the British, but with a third new ally, Poland. And this partnership was to prove the most difficult of all. Not least because the previous year, before the Nazis had invaded, Stalin and Beria, his head of secret police, had orchestrated a horrific crime against the Poles. In the spring of 1940, the Soviet secret police had killed more than 20,000 Polish officers and other Polish citizens considered a threat. Joseph Stalin had personally signed the document that had led to this mass murder. But it was a crime that was now becoming increasingly difficult to hide because his new allies were beginning to ask awkward questions. In December 1941, a delegation of Poles arrived in Moscow, led by General Sikorsky, the head of the Polish government in exile. He wanted to know what had happened to the missing officers. Even though the Poles were now allies of the Soviets, this was to be a meeting fraught with suspicion and distrust on all sides. Not that you would have guessed it from the newsreel coverage at the time. Another historic day in Moscow is marked when General Sikorsky, the Polish commander-in-chief, and Mrs. Stalin, together sign a declaration of friendship and mutual assistance between the Polish Republic and the Soviet Union. A sincere and good-natured atmosphere pervades the Moscow Council Chamber, which augurs well for the future. The newsreels made no mention of the strange disappearance of the Polish officers. But behind closed doors, Sikorsky, a plain-speaking man himself, had no problem in raising this most sensitive issue. Stwierdzam wobec pana prezydenta, że jego oświadczenie o amnestii nie jest wykonywane. Dużo i to najcenniejszych naszych ludzi znajduje się ciągle w obozach pracy i więzieniach. To nie może. Amnestia rozpoznaje się na wszystkich. Wszystkie Polaki byli osłabieni. Mam ze sobą listę około 4000 oficerów, których wywieziono siłą i którzy nadal są przetrzymywani w więzieniach i obozach pracy. I nawet ten spis nie jest pełny, zawiera bowiem tylko nazwiska, które się dało zestawić z pamięci. Ci ludzie znajdują się tutaj. Nikt z nich nie wrócił.
эти люди страдают и гибнут в ужасных условиях. Их наверняка освободили. Они просто еще не добрались до места. Stalin hadn't just lied about the fate of the missing Poles. He'd also lied about the fate of their families. Because even as Stalin met with General Sikorsky, many of the relatives of the murdered Polish citizens were still in exile in places like Kazakhstan, where they'd been forcibly sent by the Soviet secret police in 1940. Now, I want you to keep this in mind. The reason I'm saying it's not only because it's interesting, but if you're Polish and you live under Jewish communists after the Second World War, you get it? All right? Um, now, by the way, the Germans, when they invaded Russia, found the graves because they weren't that deeply buried. And it was a big propaganda zakh. You know, they, they called in the Red Cross. You'll see in a second, I think. And they say, here are all things, and you can tell they're shot in the back of the head, Stalin style, you know. And he killed, murdered all these things. Poles, what are you going to do about this? And Roosevelt and Churchill, it's the middle of the war. What are they going to say? Uh-oh. You know, Stalin said it's a lie to Germans. The Germans shot him, not me. And obviously, American and England say, oh, we trust the Russians. What are you going to say, not? And the Poles are saying, no, but it's, it's Stalin did it. This caused a gigantic row. And FDR uh, had a, you'll see this in a second, had a friend, George Earl, who had been the governor of Pennsylvania, and I think a classmate of his or something like that, and had been an ambassador to Austria or someplace, and was a close confidant of FDR. And in the middle of the war, he said, I come across evidence that the Russians did it. And Roosevelt said, no, I don't believe it. You know, that's faked. I'm telling you, they really did it. So to shut the guy up, he did something unconstitutional. He had the FBI come arrest him and send the guy in the middle of the war to Guam. You know what I'm saying? You know how to do that. He did it anyway. Because he said, I can't tamper with the Russians. It's, it's unbelievable. Take a look at this. This is Stalin's picture where he said, we didn't do it, the Germans did it. In January 1944, less than two months after the end of the Tehran conference, the Soviet authorities went public with their attempt to con the world about the murders at Katyn. The falsified documents showing the Poles had still been alive in 1941, a year after the Soviets had in fact murdered them now took pride of place in the film propaganda. This has nothing to do with the Jews. Вещественные доказательства. Среди них личные вещи, деньги, документы, письма, принадлежавшие расстрелянным немцами польским офицерам. Открытка написана на польском языке военнопленным польским офицером Станиславом Кучинским из лагеря ОН номер один и датирована 20 июня 1941 года. And key witnesses, like the Russian forester Kiselyev, had now been persuaded on threat of their own death to withdraw the testimony they'd given to the Germans. Kiselyev even lied for the benefit of the Soviet Commission of Inquiry and the newsreel about what the Germans had done to him. Опять же, начали добиваться серьезными 
чтобы я рассказал, как большевики польских офицеров уничтожали. But the Soviet deception didn't fool the British government. A British Foreign Office official who examined what the Soviets claimed had happened here at Katyn wrote a secret report in which he said that an essential part of the Soviet case was simply incredible. But all this was to remain confidential. Even before he'd read the report, Churchill had written to the Foreign Secretary saying, we should none of us ever speak a word about it. At the White House, Roosevelt did his best to ignore the problem of Katyn. The American president was focused on the bigger picture. The Western allies were preparing for D-Day and were also fighting a tough war in the Pacific. Can you make sure I get a copy at once? And send one to Hopkins. Roosevelt had never even replied to a previous report Churchill had sent him suggesting that the Soviets were guilty of the killings at Katyn. But in May 1944, Roosevelt was forced to talk about the murders. George Earle, a friend of Roosevelt's and a special American emissary to the Balkans, had uncovered evidence from his intelligence contacts that convinced him the Soviets had committed the crime. Here are these pictures. Here are these affidavits. What greater proof could you have? George, they could have rigged things up. The Germans could have rigged things up. The Nazis are very smart. This is entirely German propaganda and a German plot. I am absolutely convinced the Russians did not do this. George, you've been worried about Russia since 1942. Now let me tell you, I'm an older man. I've had a lot of experience. These Russians, they're 180 million people speaking 120 different dialects. After this war, they're going to fly to pieces like a centrifugal machine cracked through and through. I think he was horribly frustrated. I, I really do. He was all over me about the fact that he was convinced from the beginning that the Russians had done it. Ten months later, in March 1945, Earl told Roosevelt he was going to make public all his concerns about the Soviets. Roosevelt immediately wrote to him, saying it would be a betrayal for Earl to publish this material, and ordered him not to. As if this was not enough, a few days later, Earl's life was turned upside down. He was fishing from a rowing boat with a guide in a lake in Maryland when suddenly he had unexpected visitors. They were FBI agents. They had come to tell Earl surprising news. With immediate effect, he was to leave for a new post 7,000 miles away in Samoa. It was clear that President Roosevelt wanted his old friend out of the way. A few weeks later, his son managed to visit his father in his Pacific exile. He was bitter, 
He was very disappointed. Uh, he was very upset that the president had done that to him. I mean, in a democracy, you don't do that sort of thing. But the president thought wartime, he could do it, and he did it. And of course, he, he got away with it, naturally. So, you see what, I'm just telling you. you know, so, uh, anyhow, uh, what was the result of all this business I just shared with you? Diff gave Stalin an excuse to say like this, I'm not Gyrus, the other Poles. I'm sending my own Polish government. The other ones are dishonest. They think I kill people. And, you know, this was like an excuse he looked for. So he set up his own group called the Lublin uh, uh, regime, government of communists. They represent the real Poles. And that's what Poland's going to They're the real government of Poland. Uh, then he tricked the other Poles, who weren't communists, into rising against the Germans because the Russian army's almost here. If you go now, we'll help you. And then once they started, they kept back. And then the Germans and the Poles wiped each other out. Actually, the Germans wiped out the Poles, although they took a lot of losses. So it was a big slaughter to Stalin's benefit. This is called the Warsaw Uprising of 1944. It's very famous. The Russian army is right there across the river, and they didn't do anything on purpose. So the Germans destroyed 90% uh, of the city. I mean, they flattened it, and they killed everybody and all this kind of stuff. And this is, what am I talking about? July of 44. I mean, it's relatively late in the war. By the time it was over, Warsaw had been leveled, and then the Russian army came in with the army and the NKVD. So whoever's left and had any connection with the uprising will be arrested and deported or shot or something like that because you're not, not a communist. By the end, this is how they played the game. By the end of the year, by the end of 44, Stalin controls Poland. Physically, the Russian army was in control. And what are you going to do about it? Now, the war started over Poland. But Roosevelt and Churchill said, I guess we're not going to go to war with, we have enough trouble fighting Germany. And even when that's over, everybody's had enough. The American people are not willing to go to a world war over Poland. So at the Yalta conference and later at the Potsdam conference, they conceded. They said, you can have Poland. They weren't happy about it. And they tried to cover it up with phrases. Roosevelt was particularly worried that the Poles wouldn't vote for him at the, you know, in, in the election and things like that. Uh, and Stalin said, oh, you want phrases? I'll give you phrases. You will have a democratic this, that, and the other. But Lemaisa, Lemaisa, forget it. Um, and so Poland, from then on, is going to be a Soviet satellite to Gomarno. There are twists and turns to the story, but that's the end of the scene. So this is one of the main effects of the Alta Conference, where Roosevelt was there, and the Potsdam Conference, where, where Truman was there. That they said, we don't like it, this, that, and the other, but the Russians, Russians can have Poland. Right? Because of what I said before. Are you willing to go to war over that? And they're not. So um, Stalin, who is now master of half of Europe, the Russian army took over half of Europe. You know, Hungary, Romania, Bulgaria, all that. Now I had to think, OK, what do you do about Poland? Now, if he would have been the Tsar Russia Mamish, he could have said, I guess, there's no Poland, just annex it to Russia. But it's 1945. Even by his standards, it wasn't politically correct. And so he said, we'll have a puppet Poland. But then the question becomes like this, what's the borders? It's all up to one man. Poland had nothing to say in this whatsoever. And so here Stalin was very, very interesting, okay? Uh, he says, I'm going to change the borders in a very, very interesting way. So this is what Poland used to look like. And Stalin said like this, look what I'm doing. This whole area, I'm going to take. The part that brisk, the communists, the part that used to be part of Ukraine is now going to be part of Soviet Ukraine. The part that used to be Polish-Belarus is now going to be part of Soviet-Belarus. Okay, so 
we're shaving off totally the not purely Polish parts of the old Poland. But to compensate for that, we're going to take the whole chalik of Eastern Germany and give it to Poland. <laughs> here's the Germany, here's Prussia. You get Poland, you get this, and you get this. This whole business. So what are you complaining about? You lost some, but I gave you even better. And the map was radically changed, and that's the map today. So here's the new Poland. If you look what I'm doing, this is the old Prussia. This is the old Silesia, Schlesien. These are German. Not, not anymore. And so the idea was like this. I, I took some stuff away from you, but I made a compensation. What, what, what are you worried about? And I gave you part of Germany, so it's rich territory, you know, with industry and all this other kind of business. And uh, he thought it's a very uh, good idea. Then he did Borer. He said, I'm going to take the Ocho from the Psalos and the Psalos from the Ocho. In order to avoid these constant ethnic clashes, it's interesting, yeah, ethnic clashes, I'm going to do like this. I'm going to take all the Polacks out of everywhere else and stick them in Poland. I'm going to take all the Ukrainians and all this kind of stuff in Poland and take them out of Poland and put them back where they were. I'm going to take all the Germans of the territories out here and kick them out and send them into Germany. So then I did you Poles a double favor. Because what do you end up with? You end up with a nice piece of Karka and no non-Poles. You've never had that in your history. And by the way, he wouldn't say this, you got no Jews. Right? So what are you, what are you complaining about? You understand? From a, from a certain perspective, it's a dream. Now, yes and no. Uh, the trouble is, you know, the booby prize, you got a communism. But from a certain perspective, let's put it this way. It's interesting. You know, he wasn't crazy how he thought. And he proceeded to do this. Millions of people got moved around in 45, 46, and all that uh, in order to create a compact and homogeneous Poland. The Poles out of the other country, the other minorities out of Poland. So, for example, today there's a big town in Poland called Wroclaw. It's Breslau from the old Germany, where the conservative Judaism started. There's Gdansk. No, 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 it's the old Danzig when it was under Germany. You follow? The whole territories over there recently were German, but now they're not. And in 1945, who's going to mess with the Russian army? You know, America protests. I'm not exactly sure why, because the Poles said, who gave you the right to do this? And that. I mean, the London Poles, they don't count. <laughs> this is what's happening. And he said to the new communist Polish government that he set up, kick the Germans the heck out of there. If they don't leave, shoot them. <laughs> and it was a big disruption. Millions of Germans were either killed or beat up or sent on trains. They got the heck out of there. It was a rough business. But after a little while, they're all gone. And I'm sure their children and grandchildren are still to this day thinking, I'm going to get back the old thing. And the Poles are always, like I say, making their pants every time the German uh, tourists come because they need them. But on the other hand, you know, when the German walks in front of a house, like a Jew does when he visits Poland, he says, you know, the Pole knows what's, what he's thinking. Okay? And by the way, look how clever Stalin is. That way, I made it that Poles and Germans all hate each other. That works for me. You got that? If, if I give you part of his house, so I made that you're all enemies forever. So that's, that's good for me. I don't want the Poles and the Germans to team up against me. This way, it's very easy to provoke them against each other. That, my friends, is what they call European history. Now, um, and indeed, let's go to the next one. The Germans were kicked out of Prussia, this whole area that you see over here. And it's, it's the Poles now need the labor zone, the room for living. So if you're Polish and you're kicked out of Ukraine or one of these places, go move there. You follow? So it was a huge, what we call in the Gemara, Andromusia, you know, a, a huge turning around of populations. 
but they could do it. Now, the Poles, in spite of everything I just said, didn't like it, didn't like Russia at all. They're atheists, they're anti-Catholic, they're anti-Polish, all the rest of it. So there was a huge Polish underground that was trying to fight Stalin for five years. People don't know about this, from 45 to around 50. But the Russians are too good, little by little. They got them all and killed them all. You know, the, the Russians are experts in that kind of stuff. And it didn't work. So what do you end up with? You end up with a situation in which 99% of the population, I don't know, something like that, uh, hates the Russians with a passion. They hate the Polish communists because they're collaborators with the Russians and everything about them. The Russian presence is totally unacceptable under any circumstances to them, but you got to accept it. <laughs> you got to you got no choice. So this is a profound dissonance and anguish and all that kind of junk among the Poles, but there's nothing you could do about it. Right? Again, the worst form of Russians. Okay? The Tsar was nothing compared to Stalin. So Poland is now a communist state, and there is nothing you can do about it. So when there's nothing you can do about it, either you shoot yourself or you learn to adjust. <laughs> you got no choice. So this is Poland ever since 1945. Uh, now, here comes even interesting more. Stalin needs, remember, it's a puppet state, so it's Poland. Who's going to run the country? Who's going to staff the bureaucracy? Who's going to be in the administration? All the rest of it. <laughs> Most Poles don't want to do it, but you got to get some. Um, and he wants reliable ones, but most Poles loathe the Russians, Stalin. There used to be a Polish Communist Party, but Stalin shot them all in 1938, because that's what he did. You know, he used to take old groups and just shoot them, because uh, that way I'm sure they're not spies. And one of the problems that always was in the 20s and 30s with the Polish Communist Party is too many Jews. Uh, used to be in some areas 50% of the Communist Party were, were Jewish in Eastern Poland. Um, there were too many Jews in the American Communist Party. I hate to say. Uh, but this was bad for business, he realized, if we want communism to get accepted at any level whatsoever in Poland. It's bad enough that it's communist. The communist Jewish, that's like the devil incarnate. And the Poles never accept this. But the trouble is he didn't have enough goyim. <laughs> that's, that's really what happened. Um, may I say that this reality was a gigantic factor for both anti-Semitism as well as anti-communism in post-war Poland. And you can totally understand. You can totally understand it. So when we talk about Poles and Jews, it gets so twisted and so complicated. The problem is, or was, a party, a government, you need smart people, energetic people. In Poland, that's going to involve Jews. They have education, usually. They can read and write, which is not so common. Uh, you know, they, they, they can do it. In addition, Stalin viewed the Polish situation in a very interesting and devious fashion, and the Poles, the Jews, played a role in his calculations. Now I have to give you some religious instruction in another religion. The name of this religion is Stalinism, because it was a religion once upon a time. Okay? Now, in they have just like Judaism. The Rambam says there's 13 principles of the faith. In Stalinism, there's one principle of the faith. Okay? There's one derech, and that is we have to Stalin bechol above And if you laughed in 1945, you, you didn't laugh because you get hurt. You get it? So in other words, the only 
if you ask somebody, what's the principle of communism? Theoretically, it's all for one, and we're going to redistribute the property. No, it isn't. The principle at that time was whatever Stalin wants, you want. Because they'll kill you otherwise. So if he says today you should wear blue, you, everybody wants to wear blue. If tomorrow he says you want to wear red, you have to, and, 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 and hate blue, I hate blue. After all, didn't he team up with Hitler and then turn around and team up with, with Roosevelt? Correct? So the true believers, when they were told to, they went this way. When they were told to, they went that way. Do you know, when he was hooked up with Hitler, which is in 1939 and 1940, the communists in America attacked Roosevelt. You get it? Because it was Hitler Stalin. And when Roosevelt, toward help the British, started building up the American military in 40 and 41, the communists were leading all the strikes and demonstrations every day in front of the White House. And there was no fence at that time against Roosevelt. As a warmonger, as a this, Stop the spending on the military. It's terrible, terrible, terrible. Don't do anything, don't do anything, don't do anything. And in, in the 1940 election, they opposed him. It's a gun to business, okay? The New Deal, which they used to support, all of a sudden became TRAFE, because this was under orders from headquarters. On June 20th, 22nd of 1941, there was a big communist demonstration with placards and all this junk. Lafayette Park crossed you from the White House. FDR is a warmonger, no sort of thing. All of a sudden they get a message. Hitler attacked Russia. They dropped the placards. And the next day, they were the same guys were there. Go to war. It's a, you just said yesterday, you said it's an evil war of the capitalists. It's all about people making money, merchants of death. We have to go to war. By the way, America was not in the war yet. It was before, six months before Pearl Harbor. We have to go to war for Russia. How do you turn on a dime? You just have to understand it. And I'll tell you again, I'm sorry to say it, but your relatives were like this, right? If you knew anybody in your family or friends that was a communist, in those years, that's what it involved in the 20s and the 30s, the 40s, the 50s. It was you follow, you went, you went to the party meetings. I'm talking about the United States of America. Went to the party meetings. They told you this is what you support today. And you say, yes, sir. This is it. And if tomorrow they tell you the opposite, you say, yes, sir. Because the ichor is to follow, not what the, what the line is. The worst possible sin, therefore, in this religion is the slightest deviation from the party line laid down by Solomon. Whatever he says. So therefore you have over here, Exactly like a religion. It says, do not depart from what the Torah tells you right or left. So even in Stalinism, you had such a big principle. It's what they called the two cardinal sins of right-wing deviationism and left-wing deviationism. Now, you're not communist, otherwise you would notice stuff like that, like, like, you know, like water, it'd be the back of your hand. This, this is what you learned in elementary class when you went to the communist uh, Boy Scouts and things like that. Uh, now, what is the meaning of, uh, let's say, left-wing deviation? You think Stalin's not um, socialist enough, revolutionary enough. That was Trotsky, get it? They all got killed. Um, what is right-wing deviationism? In Poland, after the Second World War, hatred for the Russians is inherent and near universal because of the history that I did with you in the last couple of lectures. So even fervent communists, they're communists. But now that they take over the country, they were like a Polish communism. 
which would emphasize Polish nationalism strictly within communist framework. So I just want to be modern orthodox, <laughs> right? I just want to wear a gray hat and not a black hat. <laughs> I'll do the same thing. That means that such a communist, I repeat communist, although he is subservient to Stalin, he has an agenda which is not identical with total subservience to Russian interests. It's only 90% subservient. This is a delicate position, political position occupied. So let's go to the next one. Uh, Gomulka, Władysław Gomulka, was a leader, he was a big communist. He later became leader of Poland in the 40s, early 50s. They eventually put him in jail because he was too Polish. He was 100% a communist. But he said, I want to see more Poles and less Jews. Or, something. or I'd like to see, you know, in Russia, they do the collective farms this way. Poland, because the agriculture, we do it slightly different. That's your right wing. The minute you say you want something more Polish and less Russian, you're a right wing deviationist. Uh, so from 1945, 46, 47, 48, Stalin tolerated this in Poland. And he's the guy who oversaw kicking out the Germans from those territories I told you about. But in 1948, there arose a, like, Shabtai Tzvi within communism. And that, that was Tito in Yugoslavia. Now, Tito was a ruthless communist dictator. Let's get through this, okay? And he murdered a lot of people and all that kind of stuff. But he started to say, you know, Stalin wants to do this. I think for Yugoslavia, you'd be better to do that. That's all you need. You're in Kherim. Literally, they, they excommunicated from the communist movement. Uh, Stalin sent assassins to kill him. Yeah, it's a whole big, and, and the number one sin in post-war communism is Titoism, get it? Because you think that what they tell you in Moscow is not the best for everybody in the world, you dare to think that maybe in Yugoslavia they might know a little bit, a little bit, not a lot, a little bit different, and oh my goodness, is that crazy. Stalin freaked out. At that point, he turns against any manifestation of nationalist communism. Gomulka, I showed you before, was arrested. Stalin wants only totally subservient flunkies who are exclusively dev devoted to Russian interests and power in Poland. You understand? So from his point of view, Stalin's the god, and Gomulka is Jews for Jesus. In other words, I'm a Polish communist. That's a Jews for Jesus. That's an oxymoron. Get it? If you mean by Polish communist that you're Polish, and you're also a communist. I require, he says, Polish communist merely means a Russian in disguise. So this is, I say, it's a, it's, it's a religion, and I'll repeat it for the last time. You had uncles and aunts and this and that and the other that actually believed in this religion. They thought Judaism was stupid, and people should be atheists, but this was their religion, okay? Now, um, well, by the way, what was his big crime? Uh, let's go to the next one. Oh, well, hold on for a second. Here, here, I'll just give you one example. When Poland was reconstituted, so Stalin said like this, the Minister of Defense and Commander-in-Chief of the Polish Army should be Marshal Rukasovsky. Who is Marshal Rukasovsky? He was a Russian general, ethnically from Poland. Look at, well, hold on for a second. He leads the, the Russian parade on Victory Day in Moscow. He was, by the way, a great Russian general in World War II. He's like Zhukov. He's one of the top guys. He was a major Soviet commander. He's not Polish, right? But you say, well, Rukasovsky sound Polish, you know, his... His, no, I'm serious, and his father or something came from Poland. But he was Lemaisa, a communist Russian from day one. But since he had named Rukasovsky, he should be in charge of the Polish army. Why does Stalin do that? That way, we're in the Polish army. And every division has a Russian general and not a Polish general. 
and every regiment has a Russian uh, colonel and not a Polish colonel. So what is that? So if you're Gomelkos, I guess, why can't we have a Polish communist general? Oh, Jews for Jesus. <laughs> you get it? So look at this. This is the guy, Stalin. Here's the famous, uh, you know, the clock strikes 12 or 10, whatever. On June. This is very famous. One of the guys on the horse is Rokosovsky. You see him a second. And now he's put him in charge of Poland. On the white charger, Zhukov. Marshal Rokosovsky leads the parade together with okay. Marshal Zhukov. So, um, did he speak Polish? I imagine he did or something like that. Uh, this is how it goes in Eastern Europe. If I'll, by the way, this guy Rokosovsky was interesting. He was a Russian general. In the late 30s, Stalin thought of shooting him. So they, they arrested him. Because of general principles, they arrested him and tried to get a confession. He didn't confess. He said, I didn't do it. So they knocked out all of his teeth. Right? But they left him in jail. And then, when the, just before the war, Stalin said, maybe it would be a good job to take him out. He made him like one of the top Soviet commanders and all the rest of it. But for the rest of life, he always carried a revolver. Because he says, if they come for me again, I'm shooting myself. I don't want to go through that again. What a, and now he's the Minister of Defense of Poland. <laughs> okay. Now, um, so if you can't get Polish, Polish communists to be the leaders of Poland, who do you get? You see where I'm going? Uh, two Jews and a guy. They become the dictators of the boss of Poland. Right? Here they are. This is Jakob Berman. This is uh, Hillary Mintz. And this is the Gentile. Uh, Boleslaw Bierut. And he's the prime minister, because you can't have a Jew as a prime minister of Poland. Well, not really. In Hungary, if anybody here is from Hungary, the head of the government for 10 years, 12 years, was uh, Matyash uh, Rakoshi, who was a Jew. You see? So Stalin will take anybody. By the way, it's even better. As a Jew, he can't, he's hated by everybody around him, so he's got to depend on me. Do, do, do you get that? Yeah. It's a little bit like Pharaoh with Joseph. Okay, part of the story is you're not really Egyptian, so if you ever mess up, I need Paro, Bill Odecha, you know, uh, I'm, I can I take over here. So the heads of Poland for the first decade are two Jews and a, and a non-Jew. Um, this guy, Jakub Berman, Jakub Berman, uh, his job is to run the secret police and the internal security, you know, it's all the dirty stuff, the NKVD, which tortures and terrorizes millions of Poles. I'll say it again which tortured, and said they set up concentration camps, set up torture chambers in the 40s and 50s, and all this kind of stuff because the country didn't want the Russians there, the country didn't want the communists there, and said, so we'll make you do it. It's like breaking a dog. That's what they did. You know, the Russian style, you take to a deep cellar, you know, nobody can hear you. Uh, he is the face of Stalin in Poland, and he recruit, he's got to set up his own NKVD, I think they call the MO. So you need capable people to run the secret police. Thousands of Jews. Now, not only Jews, but uh, 38% of the NKVD in Russia is Jewish. That's a, the Jews are 1%. But they're close to 40% of the business. So if you're Jewish, if you're Polish even today, I'll bet you money that some relative of yours was beat up, was tortured with this, that, the other, by a Jew. Now, obviously, he's not acting for the Jews. Eh, they don't want to hear that. The guy that beat up and killed my mother's mother was named Weinstein or something like that. I get it. They don't want to hear what kind of Jew he is. 
So do you hear what I'm saying? Okay. Now, uh, they're the ones who torture, they kill the Catholics, the Patriots, they set up the Polish Gulag. And therefore, to the Poles starting from 1944 on, communism and Judaism conflated with the Gojido Komuna, which is Jew communism. It's not simply some anti-Semitic slur. There's something there. These are things people don't want to look at or know about, but they're part of it. Uh, now, who are these Jewish communists? Who are these guys? Well, it's kind of interesting. We've got to go back to 1944, when the Russians showed up, and 45 and 46. When the war was ending, the Poles at least thought, all the junk that's happening to us, at least all the Jews are dead, so that takes care of that problem. And then to their horror and surprise, 300,000 Jews come back. Because I tell you, out of 3.3 million, 3 million got killed, that's not enough for you. This one hid, and this one ran away and is not coming back, and this one survived this way and that way. So it's close to 300,000, it's too many. Now you might say, I guess, come on, they killed you know, 90%. It's too many. It's too many if I have a gas station, you come back to get your gas station. Do you follow? It's too many if I have a house now and you say this was my house, and it was. Because it only was two years ago that they took you away. Three years ago. You come back to a small town, and I don't want to hear that. Right? They had revolutionized their lives along the lines that I told you last time. And this is like the ghost coming back. You see? And so uh, this created enormous problems for the Polish population. Um, since the Jews looked to the Soviets as the rescuers from Hitler, because who, at the end of the day, if you're Jewish and you lived through the terrible years in that part of the world, in 1940 to 1945, who saved your life at the end? The Russian army. I mean, that's a fact. Get it? One of the Poles, one of the Ukrainians. One of the, when the Russian army showed up, that was the liberation. Who, stopped, who liberated Auschwitz, for, to, to give you one example? It's a fact. It's funny that it was Stalin, but it's a fact. And there, so uh, the Jews, therefore, are very different than their neighbors. You come back from having escaped, and you go to Krakow, the Warsaw, the Lublin, and every time you see a Russian soldier, you say, hey, fellow. And all the others say, what are you saying that for? Yeah, they're terrible. And the Jew thinks, I don't think they're so bad. <laughs> you know so it creates a white-hot hatred when they're part of the Poles. Um, especially it's egged on by the Catholic priests who are, no, no, who are understandably horrified at what they're witnessing and experiencing because the priests are all being rounded up and killed and the church is being closed down and the nunneries and all this kind of stuff are being persecuted. And you, you, you see how it's coming together in a bad story? In this environment, returning Jews have to rely, can only rely, on the Soviet soldiers. Now, she's not here. Paul Weinstein was telling me the other day, so she was a young girl, Mrs. Weinstein. And, uh, you know, the Pollocks tried to kill her, and the Russian soldiers came over and saved her and put her in a car and said, get out of here, you know? That happened over and over again. So who are the good guys and who are the bad guys? You know, if you have an American narrative or a Polish narrative, the Poles are the good ones, the Russians are the bad ones. But if you're Jewish, you don't get killed. So the Russians are the good ones, the Poles, the Poles don't want to hear that. So you see how life in the Gullis can get unbelievably entangled. And you can't blame people for feeling how they feel. Um, and so the result is a series of pogroms in Poland after the Holocaust. Two famous ones, one's in Krakow and the other one's in Kilts. Uh, you don't see the pogroms, but they're famous pictures, let's go over here, of burying the victims after the Holocaust. So the whole world was like, shot, what? I remember, you know, people said, what? I thought the war's over. 
get it? And what did they think in America and the other place? They said, well, the Poles are just irredeemably anti-Semitic. They've always killed Jews. and It's not actually true. Do you see? But it fit a very understandable narrative. It's, it's, it's interesting, right? Poles hadn't done pogroms before. All right, a little bit. It's, you see, and how could you kill people after World War II? Easy. You know, in the environment we saw. I forgot to bring them. If you ever see the, the, some of you will know what I'm talking about. If you ever see the uh, book about Revelezer Silver, and on the front he has an American Army uniform. I think, I think many people are familiar with that. And why, why did he get an American Army uniform? He went in late 45, early 46 over to Europe, and they told him it's going to be a big anti-Semitism, all the rest of it. So he got himself temporarily commissioned like a brigadier general for honorary purposes. So he have a uniform. So there's a picture of a rabbi with a beard with the, with the army uniform. And Taka, when he was in Poland, he was on a train, and they couldn't decide, you know, the Schottim over there, couldn't decide, should, should we beat him up and kill him? Or maybe he's an American officer, really? And that's what saved his life. So that was the atmosphere. Now, most people used to like this. I thought when World War II was over, the bad stuff was over. Right? I mean, that's how the movies go. And the Germans were destroyed or beaten or went, went away. Now the good guys came in. In some places, and <laughs> not in others. Poland is just, and other areas like that, but we're talking about Poland, the Jews in Poland, is different, okay? Now, um, the government authority, the communist authority is very uncomfortable with this. They're Jewish themselves, many of them, and they realize the public hates the Jews. And the more they see Jews, like themselves and like the people around them, the worse and worse the hatred will get. And even though it's a communist dictatorship, people can't change. So it's a very delicate type of situation. And therefore, the communist authorities, m many of whom were Jewish, in 1945, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and 51 also, not up to 50, 51, even though it's Stalin, even though it's Stalin, say like this, any Jew wants to leave can go. We encourage you. Okay? Please leave. <laughs> because that's the best solution. Agreed? Now, historically, back in the 20s and 30s, you couldn't go anywhere. After 45, you can go to two places. In 45, 46, 47, you can go to the American zone. The U.S. Army is occupying southern Germany, Bavaria. And so there's a huge immigration. I mean, hundreds of thousands of people, tens of thousands, whatever, uh, constantly to go from Poland to go to a DP camp in Bavaria or Austria, because then, even though now you're a displaced person, you're under the USA. You get it? And after 48, you can go to Israel. After 48, you can go to Israel. And the Polish government, even though, according to the Hilkos communism, you shouldn't let somebody go out and all the rest of it, but under the circumstances I'm, I'm, I'm describing to you, Berman, these other guys, this is just, you know, go where you can. And believe you me, the Jewish Fabrenta communists in Poland said, nobody should go. You're uh, depleting the Yiddish-speaking uh, population and readership, and you're a parasite and all the rest of it. And the Jews like this, I'm a parasite, I'm a schmo, all the rest of it, shalom. <laughs> you know, unless you're like a super-duper believer. And the result is that um, it's easy to get out of Poland if you're Jewish. Now, this is weird. You can't get out of the Iron Curtain. You know that, right? But there's exceptions, if you know where they are. And Israel, by the way, knows this. You know, the Bricha before the war and the uh, Aliyah, Bet, and all that after the war. 
Israel had a big presence in Poland, in communist Poland, which was not bad to Israel, by the way, in those years, even though they're ideologically you know, uncommon. But all Jews, they can't help it, even though Fabrenta communists, with a couple exceptions, know what we Jews all went through together just a few years ago. And even though under Stalinism, you're not allowed to say that, but we know it. And um, the head of the country, Jakob Berman, who's minister of the interior, head of the secret police, head of the KGB, and all this kind of stuff, he tells Jews, in fact, he tells his brother and sister, go make Aliyah. And his brother became a Knesset member. She had a weird situation. You have the dictator of Poland over here, and you got the brother who's a Chavar Knesset, on the Mapam, of course, on the extreme left-wing party, eventually the Israeli Communist Party. But still, why, if you're a communist, why do you move to Israel? Because in Israel, Jewish communists make sense to some degree. In Poland, right, you see what I'm saying? So if the head of the country is telling his own brother and sister to get out of there, what does that tell you? You understand? Um, and so the result is that many leave, but there's so many Jews in the administration because that's the only people Stalin can trust in the end. The Jews who are in the government will turn to the right, turn to the left, to whatever you want because they know this is their only key to survival. If they lose the job, the Poles will eat them alive. And so they'll do any dirty deed that they're told to do. And in the late Stalinist period, in 1949, 50, 51, 52, 53, Stalin, for his own purpose, launched a general anti-Semitic campaign. Remember the doctor's plot at the end and all that? Anti-Zionist, they called it. And that means all throughout the uh, satellite countries, they all of a sudden started having these trials in which they see so-and-so is a Zionist spy, and they hang him. Like in Czechoslovakia was a, a big a bunch of the trials. I forget the guy's name. And, what's that? No, no. But uh, it, it come to me. It doesn't matter. The, uh, but the, but, but uh, and, in, and in Romania, you know, the, the, the lady was uh, killed, Anna Parker. One by one, they went after it. What about Poland? He can't do it. He needs all these guys. And there's a big pressure by the Soviets to find Jews to, uh, to uh, have a trial and, and hang them for Zionism in 51, 52. Stalin dies early 53. It's a very weird situation because they, you understand, they want to do what Stalin wants, but they can't take the people that they need mostly. And, you know, how do you do this? And Stalin tells the head guy who's not Jewish, Bieret, he says, why don't you get rid of some Jews for me? And Bieret says, I need these guys. You know, I can't run the country. You don't, you don't want the communism to fall apart. And so it's a nutty situation. The anti-Semitic campaign, which is required by Stalin, has to be administered by Jews. Does that make sense? In the Jewish newspapers, the others all say, you know, the Jews are a bad element, and the Zionists, and this and that, and the other people writing to the Jews. So this is like, a, you know, Ionesco or something like that. Uh, and therefore, it's less stringent, this anti-Semitic campaign in Poland, than anywhere else in the Soviet bloc, because all the people are, all the people are Jewish. Stalin has no one else to run the country, so he says nothing. Now, if he would have lived another couple of years, I know Stalin, he would have fixed that. You know what I mean? He said, give me a year or two to bring in some guy, and then we'll kill all these guys. But uh, he kicked the bucket. Now, during all this time, how does the average Pole, the 20 million or whatever, feel in all this? They're in bondage and they're hopeless. Right? This is the way it goes. You got to follow and that's it. And so does uh, Berman. Okay? The, the head of the country, Jakob Berman. What do I mean? Stalinism requires that the version of the Holocaust go like this. The only 
good people in the Holocaust were the communists. The only people in the Warsaw Ghetto who fought against the Germans were the communists. Anybody else was a, a, a collaborator with the Nazis. And even those who fought, and they won't even admit it, you know, the Zionists who fought in the Warsaw Ghetto or such places really were a certain type of fascism and their uh, worst kind of criminals whose memory should be, uh, you know, spit upon. And only the communists were the good ones. And who got killed in the war? Listen to what I'm telling you. Who got killed? Oh, Poland had a terrible time in the war. They lost six million. This is what they say. Three million, now, according to what they're saying, the Poland lost six million. Who were they? It doesn't really matter, but in their breakdown, it's three million Poles and it's uh, three million Jews. But the Jews are Poles. Get it? So in other words, the only people that were killed were Polish, of various backgrounds, see how I'm doing it? And that's the way you write the Stalinist narrative. So the guy can't even say, my mother was killed because she was Jewish or something like that. My mother was killed by the fascists because, you know, she was from a progressive background or, or something like that. And, you know, how do you, so basically, you have to culturally spit on your own uh, uh, parents, on your own uh, tradition. That's what's required in this religion. Uh, in Hebrew, we call it being mavatala vodazar. If you spit on an idol, then you're mavatala. You understand? So you have to spit on the Jewish uh, uh, past. And the kind of narrative that's taught in the schools and universities in the Stalinist period is exactly that. There was a Holocaust. Well, no, there wasn't a Holocaust. It was just Hitlerite, um, which I say, killing of peoples in Eastern Europe, all kinds of people. And the Jews were one of them, no question about it. But usually they'll go democratic. They'll say more guns. So, you know, it's, it's like, if, you went to, if you went to Auschwitz at that time, they'll say all kind of people were killed here. The Poles, the Ukrainians, this, 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 that, that, and Jews. You follow? You know, a few Jews. <laughs> you know what that's, that's, that's how they, they were taught in, in those days. Um, and, of course, this narrative uh, absolves the non-fascist Poles. So all you have to do is say, like, oh, we were progressive, we were communist, sympathizers, and we're, oh, then you're good. Even if you took over a Jew's house. <laughs> Even if you stabbed your neighbor in the back. But if you're a communist, I mean, you're a member of the progressive forces, and that didn't happen. <laughs> you follow? It didn't happen. So uh, in 1953, Stalin finally died. And Beria, the secret police, was bumped off shortly. And the head of the Polish KGB knows the guy who actually ran the operations, you know, the, the Himmler, who was, who was Jewish. His name was Yosef Sviatlo, Sviatwo, but his name is really Yitzhak Fleischfarb. So uh, these are the guys that ran these torture chambers and the shooting in the back of the neck and all the rest of it. I'll tell you again, you got to get used to it or, or not, otherwise you don't understand how Paul feels. A uh, whole bunch of these guys. Some of them in their later years after Poland became free ran away to Israel and got asylum, just like uh, Eichmann ran away to Argentina and got asylum from the Polish point of view. You get it? So um, anyhow, uh, he defects to the West in 53. It's one of the big CIA coups because he spills the beans. And they got 50 books of, of, uh, of uh, debriefing out of him. And then Alan Dulles put him on the uh, Radio Free Europe and every day he's broadcasting to Poland. So this, you, know, you want to know what's really going on in your government? Da, da, da. And uh, this is a terrible blow for the administration. Uh, whatever authority they had is unraveling. And in 1956, Khrushchev denounces Stalin. Remember, he says Stalin was a big lie. Then the Poles say, oh, Stalinism is a lie. We can revolt. And so there's a big riots in Posen, Poznan, in early of uh, 56. Uh, the army under Rakosovsky shoots 10,000 people, kills 10,000 people. Think about 10,000 people. 
and, uh, and how many others were wounded. And by the time it's over, the whole country's going crazy, and the Russians said, that's it, we're going to invade. But the Poles say like this, um, you don't have to invade. We don't want to break away from Russia. We're not stupid. Yeah, we're not going to war. We just want a Gaisha communism. Yeah, we want to change the personnel. Since it's Poland, we want Poles. So take this guy Gomulka out of jail and put him in charge and get rid of all these Jews and these people because the Jews shouldn't be in, in, in the government of Poland. And it'll be a Polish communism. Do you get it? And thinking it through, Khrushchev agrees because he saw that Gomulka is a sincere communist and he wasn't a Stalinist. He didn't, he didn't need 100% following. He'll settle for 95 and Gomoko was a 95. He was a complete and total dedicated communist, all that kind of stuff. But he wanted to do the Poland the Polish way, like I said before. I don't want all these Jews around here, right? And I want to you have know, something of a kind of a narrative that's more Polish nationalist pride, with, totally within communism. And Gomoko told the Polish people, he said, listen, we're going to have an improvement, but don't fool yourself. If we break away from Russia, they'll give it back to Germany. You understand? This is the reality we live in. And so let's make the best of, 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 of a situation. And uh, what do you call it? It worked. He, he had a huge crowd. Uh, when he was appointed head of the government, a huge crowd uh, spontaneously marched in, you know, in, in, in Warsaw. It's a gigantic meeting. And uh, now the Poles got a better form of communism. Okay. Um, he was no Dubček. You know, remember in Czechoslovakia, had Dubček in 68. He really wanted to liberalize it. He doesn't want to liberalize. He just wants, you know, really... It's a certain type of anti-Semitism, even though his wife is Jewish. Okay? So um, Jews are purged from not all, but many posts. So now the secret police will be all guy. <laughs> you understand? The concentration camps will be run by Poles. The army generals and the others won't be rock and they'll be Polish guys. They'll be under Soviet, the Polish guys. And people feel that's a little bit of a more normal situation. Uh, what's the result? 45,000 Jews leave the country because the, the, the government says like this, ain't no room for you over here. But in, that's a lot of people, by the way. In, uh, in 1956, it's not the 1930s anymore. You have a state of Israel, okay? And what do they say in this, what's the first thing that was passed? Literally on May 14, 1948, what's the first law that was passed? You know what happened? You know this famous scene when Ben-Gurion announced that was a Friday afternoon, I know everybody knows that. And therefore they said we have to uh, finish this up in time for Shabbos, I mean that. But he said, but before we adjourn, we're going to pass one law. The one law is we're abolishing the white paper. So from this minute when any Jew can come, at any time. So if you get kicked out of Poland, now by the way, who are these people getting kicked out of Poland? They're communists. Right? But now they got a place to go. And Israel therefore had a big immigration, relatively speaking, of Western Jews, I mean, from European Jews in 56, 57, and 58, are Polish Jews. And by the time they come there, Israel's already like a going concern. You know, I mean, it wasn't luxurious, but you want to know something? By the standards of Poland, it was luxurious. Maybe I'm wrong. These were communists, so they lived better than the others. You see? It's, it's, it's a tricky business. Life was bad unless you were a member of the inns. If you remember the inns, then you live better. So it's a, it's, you, you end up giving a uh, a small apartment in a suburb of Haifa might not be an upgrade for a Polish Jew 
emigrating in 1957. It's, it's funny how these things work out. So um, the reduction of the Jews, that was half the population. About 50,000 left, 45,000 went to Israel, 5,000 went elsewhere. So instead of 100,000 Jews left in Poland, that was a 50,000. That's a big cut. And that eased the anti-Semitism slightly, just because you don't see them as, as much. This regime that I'm talking about under Gomolka uh, keeps up all the Holocaust baloney, you know, the, the Poles were the good guys, the communists were the other guys, especially now permitted to, dis now you can display, it's, it's Mutter, it's not Stalin anymore. You can show a little Polish pride. So you can say, you know, the communist Poles were the heroic uh, champions and this kind of business. The Russians accept this because they know, as I told you before, that if Gomolka steps out of line, uh, it may lose the German stuff, uh, Silesia and Prussia. See, there's uh, uh, Khrushchev being buddy-buddy with the head of East Germany. If you're Polish, what do you say? Oh, my God, what are they talking about? They're going to give that back. And Khrushchev knew how to do it. So every time Poland did anything in the slightest, in the slightest, slightest, he, all he had to do was invite the head of East Germany there and talk about it. He said, oh, we have very productive discussions. Poland go crazy. You see? Oh, my God, what's happening? So this is the politics of Eastern Europe at that time. But on the other hand, Poland is homogeneous, as I told you before, but they're poor as heck. The standard of living there was disgusting. There's a tiny group of a percent of a percent of a percent that lives well, and the other 99.9%, the economy was terrible because uh, you can be a Polish communist, all the rest of it, but there's no food. Okay? There's no housing. This, this is what it was. Um, so if you're Poland living in the 50s and the 60s now, we're up to the 60s, you say, we lost the war. <laughs> right? We lost the war. We had Hitler and Stalin. And now, 15 years or 20 years after the war, it's, it's worse than it was in the 30s. And what's really enraging to them is Germany and Israel are doing great. Get it? You know, kick the Jews out. Of the, they're doing good. This is the period. Ben-Gurion got the billion dollars from Adenauer, remember? And the Israeli economy started to pick up. And where did Adenauer get the money? Germany is good. Right? So that's not fair. They're the ones that messed over Poland, and they really did. But as you know, then they rebuilt themselves in an amazing way. So much so, here's Ben-Gurion saying, I met Adenauer, Adenauer, and it's a new Germany. I don't forget the past. You know, he said, we don't forget the past. But on the other hand, it's a new day. And if you're Polish, you're like, <laughs> right? What's going on? That's not right. They should be starving, and we should be living on the spoils of the war. But you can't say that, because what do you blame it on? <laughs> you can't blame it on the, uh, 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 whatever. Alongside prosperity, I mean, how do polls, let's go to the next one. How do polls look? This is the 1957 election, I always love this, uh, poster in Germany. They were doing so good that Conrad Adenauer ran on the following uh, slogan, no change. Kind of experiment. It's the opposite of America, of Obama. Whatever we did the last four years, that's what we'll do the next four years. Good, that's what I want. Meaning their economy was like, I don't know, 15% expansion, you know, crazy numbers, all the time new factories are going up, new roads, new this, new that. The German economy was booming. I mean, who runs on a thing that I'm not going to change a single thing I'm doing? Okay? And by the way, Poland's next door. See, so like, <laughs> it's not right. Okay? Um, alongside prosperity, now pay close attention to this, 
along with prosperity, another thing is happening in the 50s and 60s and afterwards. And that is the Jewish Holocaust narrative is gaining international traction. I'll repeat, not the Polish, the Jewish Holocaust narrative is gaining international traction. After all, once you had the Eichmann trial, which is seen around the world, and we all know it happened, so nobody knows anything or gives a darn about Poland, about Lithuania, about Ukraine, and all that. But the Jews, the Jews, the Jews. So in our country, in our thing, we said, yeah, now see the Holocaust, and what's the talk with the Shoah, six million people? Of course, it's terrible. But I'm talking about if you're living in Eastern Europe, they get all this. We, we have a few people we'd like to put up on trial, you see? And what happens? In world culture, Western culture, world culture, the story of 1939 to 1945 becomes an exclusively Jewish story. And is it true or not? Uh, not only that, but you, you're old enough, many are old enough to remember the flood of literature that starts to hit around 1960. It's all about the Jewish Holocaust. Uh, remember John Hersey's Wall, Meal 18, Elie Wiesel books, and many others. Yeah, Primo Levi, all these guys. What, what we call Holocaust literature. What is Holocaust literature? Jews. So you read these books, suppose you're American and you're not Jewish, and you read a book like that, which would require reading in some places. We read it. I know about Jews in Poland in, 19, in, in the 40s. I read the, you know, Meal 18. It's all about the Warsaw Ghetto. And what's the Warsaw Ghetto? It's about a bunch of Jews. Where are the Poles? They're in the background, a bunch of jerks. You know, they didn't help, they this and the other. Whatever happened to Poland? Who knows? Who cares? Have you got Polish? Wait a minute. The Jews have a story, but we do too. Lithuanians have a story, the Estonians have a story. You don't hear any of that. You know what I'm saying is the truth. Nobody ever heard of these guys. World War II was about the Jews. Now, it is, right? That's not a lie. But is it only? And that becomes the question. Is it only? And so, uh, let me put it this way. Are there any Polish books that anybody ever heard of? Written in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s about the war years? It's communist propaganda. I mean, it's almost a joke to say Polish literature. Nobody, nobody ever read a book like that, correct? And it's all communist stuff anyway. You know, in this country, in Western Europe, they're not going to read anything about, about that. He said, oh, I have a great Polish book that tells you how wonderful the communists were. Nobody's reading that. You're not going to give a book review in the, in the New York Times of anything like that. But if you write a book about the Warsaw Ghetto or something like that, it'll be reviewed in the London Review of Books, the New York Times Review of Books, and so on and so forth. Agree? And so... In the published and filmed narratives, which start to increase in number in the late 50s and after the 60s and in our lifetime, what we call the Holocaust industry, um, the Poles are the ugly furniture. Now, from a Jewish perspective, they are, I mean, often. But that's a Jewish perspective. Is that how we're portrayed in world literature? They're the other. It's almost weird. The Jews are supposed to be the, the small minority, the ones that are this one. But the Jews are literate and writers. And so when they write and make movies and all the rest of it, they're the central characters. And the others are like, you know, the furniture. And since the Poles are behind the Iron Curtain, they have no voice to say anything about it. Any of this. They, they, they can't say nothing about nothing. So here, i just show you a, 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 one second. Just as it's ran today, I put this all together. You remember the Winds of War? Right? Anybody know what I'm talking about? So Herman Woke, 
wrote this uh, two big novels, and then they made it into miniseries. Herman Walks a Jew. So he wrote a grand Holocaust narrative. You didn't title. No problem with that. It's World War II. But Herman Wolf, from his perspective, he wrote about Jewish family, mainly. A Jewish family and American family. Okay. So where are the poles? Listen, it's the furniture. You follow? So here in the very beginning, I managed to pull this off right now just before I came here. He said, in the beginning of the novel, which is obviously based on historical, uh, it's historical fiction, but you know, based on World War II. It's 1939, the war just started, and some of the heroes, I forget who's who, are driving in a car, and some dumb Polish soldiers, gonna, anti-Semites, anti gonna stop them and pull them out of the car. Did that happen? Of course it happened. Is that the whole uptight of Poland's war against Germany in 1939? Doesn't matter. I'm the writer, I can do whatever I want. Agreed? And if you're Herman Woke, you can even command a total Hollywood control. By the way, he, he uh, I'll just say this in his praise, not in a, not in a negative. He uh, said, I'm not going to allow this to be a movie, a miniseries, unless I write and control the whole script, because I don't want any whitewashing of the Holocaust. So it's the nine days now. If you see his thing, especially the Warren Remembrance second half, it's, it's drama dramatized, obviously, but they give it the whole business. You want that whole Auschwitz, if that's what you want. The whole Auschwitz, the whole everything. You know, they spare no details. I'll repeat, it's actors. But they spare no details, because he said, I want this out there so nobody should deny it. But take a look at this. This is war from Polish place. The war just started. It's a Jewish guy driving the car. Polish soldier. Dokąd pan jedzie? Do Warszawy. Kto jedzie z panem? Moja rodzina. Dokumenty, proszę. Życie. Czy ty nie wiesz, że tu Niemcy wkraczają? Bawisz się w hazard. Już panu powiedziałem. Co my tylko pojechać do Warszawy. Życie. Nie okazujesz mi pełnego respektu. Speak to me with respect. Jak zabiorę ci samochód, co? Wtedy zobaczymy, jak łatwo Żydom dostać się na piechotkę do Warszawy. What is this? He's a very bad Polak, there is good Polak. This time very bad Polak. Wszyscy von samochodu. Powiedziałem von! He wants our automobile. Hold on here, let me talk to this guy. <laughs> now, you're, you're, you're the uh, watcher, you know, whatever they call that. Uh, what's the message? The Poles, you know, a bunch of anti-Semitic. Okay. Uh, now, if you're Polish, you're like, my grandfather was killed fighting Hitler. You know, you get it. So there's 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 what you call a narrative struggles. And the Jews were able, because of the weird fact that all these other countries behind the Iron Curtain, to have like a open field for what we call a hegemonic discourse, and and that's what happened in our lifetime. Uh, it's, a, it's a very interesting situation. It's going to last until 1990, until the Eastern European countries come free. Until then, the Jews pretty much have the run of the narrative, don't they? There's nobody Polish, nobody Lithuanian, nobody Russian, nobody Soviet. 
writing things that anybody in the West will read until around 1990. Okay, so when we grew up, it's, it's one voice out there. The only thing about the Holocaust, oh yeah, I read Elie Wiesel, I did, you know. <laughs> that's what it is. Okay, um, meanwhile, what happens in Poland? Gomelko with his nationalist baloney can't deliver a standard of living. He can get a, a Polish general in the Polish army, a Polish cop in the Polish uh, secret police, but he can't deliver the, uh, the food because we all know what communism is, you know, right? It's, it's, it's the opposite of, uh, of, of economic sense. Even in the 1960s when everybody everywhere is doing well, in the 60s, right? Maybe remember there was such a thing? Uh, Poland is still unbelievably poor and backwards and all that. And meanwhile, what's the Savara behind it? Khrushchev already exposed the uh, crimes of Stalin. So as far as the communist religion is concerned, that I just described to you, it's, it's like, remember the scene in The Wizard of Oz that we have it? Once you know who Stalin is, it's like, now you know that the whole thing was balloon. We all know the scene, right? <laughs> the, the, the game is up, right? No, it used to be that you justify terror and persecution and privation for the glory of communism according to the sheet of Stalin. Now it turns out it was a, a big lie. How do you know? The head of communism just told you that, Khrushchev. So what does that do? After that speech, and by the time 60, what poll believes in this stuff? Uh, what poll believes that America is the big villain, the great Satan? <laughs> yeah, uh, seriously, you know, they know what's going on in America. They see what's going on around them. They got nothing to eat over there in America. It's like unbelievable, correct? When Nixon, of all people, went to Warsaw in 1960, I think it was, 59, he got like an unbelievable uh, parade. The, the polls were like, uh, the government was embarrassed because all these people were like, take me to America. You understand? Get me out of here. The, uh, so imagine an entire society that's, that's like that. By 1967, Poland is a pitiful state, um, although no one is allowed to talk about it. Israel, on the other hand, in 67, astonishes the world with the Six-Day War. Uh, and the whole world's agog over Israel. Not in the Soviet bloc. Remember, they put Israel in a ban and they broke off relations, including Poland. Notice all of a sudden, after 67, Israel becomes enemy number one. And uh, an official anti-Zionism uh, campaign begins in the government. But against who? Who's left? Only the Fabisin, a real super communist. Everybody else went on before. So the ones who are left in 67, 68 are the true believers. They're not good Jews. <laughs> they, they didn't get a Jewish identity from the parents. They're the ones who literally believe in, they're probably the only ones who believe in the real thing. Everything that's going wrong in the country is their fault. Okay? Everything going on in the country are fault. The newspapers are dominated by these guys. It turns out that there's like one guy in the newspaper. Well, I told you. You see, the schools and universities are poisoned by these guys. There's one professor. Okay? There's one teacher. Maybe. It's all their fault. You follow? And this is organized by the government. And in March 68, not long afterwards, the intellectuals in Poland on their own, because it was 1968, the year of Woodstock and everything else, around the world, so the intellectuals in Poland begin uh, uh, protests against the communist regime. Listen, by 68, it's 23 years after World War II. You're still putting up with this junk? Seriously, you know? Think about that. Now, uh, the regime responds by suppression plus an anti-Semitic campaign. So nobody should open their mouth. And anyway, it's all the fault of these Jews in Poland. There's no shred of communism left by this time. What do I mean by that? They can't really make a communist argument that it's the Jewish fault. 
But it doesn't matter because by this time, whose spirit had revived and become the spirit and the moving force of the administration and the government in Poland? Our old friend, Domofsky. Remember him? The new general in charge of the, the secret police, the Minister of Interior, General Moksar, uh, is famous. He was exactly a Domofsky guy. He's a communist. He did whatever he needs to do for the communism. But a major element is there are too many Jews in the country. Get them out of here. Poland's all the it's, it's literally like back to the 30s, just with a communist face. Okay? There's nobody to chase out. <laughs> yes, there is. See, like that. Yes, there is. And so, by the way, it's Domofsky minus capitalism. That's a bad combination. You know, back in the old days, at least, you had a market for it. You know, there was food out there in the store. Um, it's a totally loser situation. So the last 25,000 Jews leave Poland, the red elite, okay? Uh, they're not stateless, though. They can go to Israel. I mean, you know, in 1968, you have an Israel. Believe me, they are no gain for Israel. Do you follow what I'm saying? They went because they got no choice. They hate Israel because that's what they've been taught and teaching. And I don't know how they got along. I think uh, some of the left-wing reporters now in Harris, I'm, I'm serious about this, come from parents of this background, um, because they're really self-hating Jews. Just, you might even say like this, I'm taking you kicking and screaming out of the gullahs and sending you to, to, to Israel. So it's, it's quite a funny story. I would like to think, I don't know, I would like to think that these people's grandchildren are now from or something like that, but that'd be, that'd be too good of a story. I don't believe it. Um, so, guess what? The Jews leave now. There's only 5,000 left in the country. It's nothing. And the country is now ruled by Domofsky, by the National Democrats and communist guys. I mean, who are the people in the regime? And, uh, people hate the Jews and all that. It's all their fault, not real Polacks. And nevertheless, even though there are no Jews in the country, things get worse and worse. Whoa, hey, explain that. I mean, they had food shortages of a serious nature. You can't blame the Jews now, you mumsers. So the regime, the government, is a joke because they continue to blame the Jews. There's 5,000 left. You understand? Uh, that's why Menachem Begin wasn't afraid. He says, listen, I'm from Poland, and the Poles don't like Jews, and that's how it goes. You understand? Call a spade a spade. You, know, you see now, you blame, who are you blaming? In fact, he made a famous speech. Let's go to the next one. He says, who are you going to attack now? You got to attack the, the, the cemeteries. There's nobody left. Who are you blaming it on? People are dead. You killed everybody. That's not exactly true, but you, but you hear the rhetoric of it, okay? And the government now is all, everything is the fault of the Zionists. As a result of what I'm saying, by the 1970s, for the first time, anti-Semitism goes out of fashion because it's associated with the regime. And educated Poles say, you know, anti-Semitism is a bad thing. Not because they love the Jews. You know. You know what I'm saying? Because, because if you go along with that, you sound like you support this corrupt system. You follow? It becomes passe, socially uh, uh, unacceptable. Educated people don't, they say, oh, the anti-Semitic stuff again. Not because they love Jews, they don't know any Jews. But it's like associated with all the lies. Because there's no food, no sausage. If you go to the May Day Parade, they'll give you, uh, I'm serious about it, if you go to the May Day Parade, they'll give you a, a six pack of hot dogs, of sausages. So people write about this. And they say, you know, I hated to go, this and that and the other, but my family, you know, they, 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 where, where am I going to get sausage? And now, I'm, I'm trying to tell you, Baruch Hashem, we're in America, don't know food shortage. Yeah, food shortage. In the 70s, what's the excuse for that? And they know very well 
that everybody else around them is living well. You know, by the 70s, you already have TV, you know, things like that. You, you know, but you know where you're stuck, you're stuck. Okay? By the 70s and the 80s, 1970s and 80s, uh, the Jewish Holocaust narrative has gotten epic proportions. I, I just, look, who's Ali Wiesel? He's with every president, <laughs> correct? And the Holocaust museums are spreading up all over the world. And Holocaust education becomes part of the public school and the college. But when I say Holocaust education, it's a Jewish Holocaust narrative. You get it? If they're teaching in the inner city schools about the Holocaust, they're teaching a Jewish story. If you go to the museum in Washington, D.C., it's primarily a Jewish story. The reason is because it was. <laughs> but on the other hand, there is a Polish narrative as well. It gets no traction. Okay? Unless you can find a rare Pole who helped a Jew. That's the whole, get it? See how I spun it? You find me somebody's Polish who helped a Jew, so that's, uh, 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 that's something. But what about the fact that Poland is still under Russia and being tortured all the, it uh, doesn't matter. So all this stuff drives them crazy. Um, another very powerful force that emerges in the 70s against Polish anti-Semitism was the new Pope, right? John Paul II, uh, who's one of the great popes, and I'm speaking in terms of Jews. And he was one of the good Poles. He helped, he helped people in the war. He was a real believer. He helped, people, he helped Jews in the war because a real, real Catholic, a real, 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 real Catholic, said, like, thou shalt not kill. <laughs> what are you going to do? It's not there. Thou shalt not steal. It's not right. Now, there weren't so many people like that, but he was one of them. And you know, it was a romantic story. He, he, he rose from nothing to become the Pope. And when he became the Pope, the Poles are going crazy because 1979, they're trying to get rid of Russia. You have the Solidarity Movement just starting all the way. And one of their own, homeboy makes good, first non-Italian Pope in many centuries, and he talked was a great man. You know, I don't know if you follow this Pope business, but he, he's one of the great Popes. Um, and very impressive person. And one of his messages, and he is, he's more, he's a, a Polish Democrat. He's, if I would say, more liberal than Pilsudski. You understand? That's who he was. And therefore he said like this, anti-Semitism is wrong because it's wrong. <laughs> you don't usually hear that. So here he is visiting Poland in 1979. The regime can't get people to come to the May Day Parade unless they give away free hot dogs. He gets two million people for mass. How does it make the government look? You understand? This really took the sales out of common. After this time, it was just a joke, just waiting, you know, to happen. I'll tell you again, two million people show up all over the place, here and there and the other, and he sings songs and all this kind of stuff. Part of who he is, now by the way, there are a lot of cardinals they could have picked Polish that would have been anti-Semitic. It's interesting. And I remember many Jews said at the time, oh, Gewalt, a Polish pope. Ay, ay, ay. But we were wrong. Okay? And, he t and especially on the question of how to relate to Jews, he's one of the great popes and the most liberal and um, as you know, when he became Pope, he, he's the first one to set up, a, a, a recognize Israel, and he went to visit Israel, he went to the Kotel, and he put a petek in the, in the Kotel, so I guess I'm asking forgiveness for the Holocaust. So if you're Polish, and you're a believer in the Pope, that sends a message. It may not be 100% a message you're not comfortable with, but if that's the teaching of the church, that's a powerful, that's a powerful business. You understand? So you have a lot of things coming together by the time we get to the 70s and 80s against anti-Semitism, if, if you follow what I'm saying. Mainly, there are no Jews. <laughs> by 
you know, no Jews in Poland, anti-Semitism has to, has to recede. The main fight now, you get to the 1980s against the Russians. And this is the great decade in Polish history. We have Lech Walesa and Reagan. Look at this. There's a statue in Poland. Ronald Reagan walking with the Pope. Because to, to the Poles, Ronald Reagan's like a major hero. Because he intervened with the Russians, this, that, and the other. And at the end, the Russians didn't kill all the Poles, which they could have done. And as a result, the Poles got rid of Russia. You know, the communism fell. So there's dramatic, let's put it this way. If you're Polish, you've got more important things to worry about than anti-Semitism. The government, all through the 80s, keeps trying to fan, it doesn't work. There was one or two guys in the uh, Solidarity Movement, I forget, out of Michnik or something like that, who were Jewish, one or two. And they said, see, it's a Jewish movement. And the Poles said, get out of the way with that junk, you know? Sausage, <laughs> you know, food. You know, don't, don't give me this Jew business, you see? There are no Jews here. It's your fault. And eventually it led to the fall of communism in 1990. So now you have, the last 28 years, for the first time, a free Poland. And to be perfectly honest, a free, free Poland, but of an unusual variety. It's not like the old republic which had a lot of minorities and all this other trouble. And they didn't have a fascism like, uh, that seized power like Pilsudski did. And it wasn't the old kingdom of Poland from hundreds of years ago, which was a whole mishmash. Now you have a free Poland for the first time, homogeneous, it's only Polish, uh, no Jews of any significant number. Uh, and they want to be part of the West. <laughs> they've, been, they've been smothered being part of the Soviet zone. Believe me, they're like yearning. They say, we don't belong here. Poland should be moved <laughs> 500 miles to the West. Can you do that? You say, we don't belong here. Poland's always identified with the West. If in the West, they can't be anti-Semitic. Not in the 1990s. If you want to be accepted by the USA, that's Clinton, you can't be anti-Semitic. If you want to get into NATO, which they desperately won in the 1990s, you can't be anti-Semitic. You get what I'm saying? These are powerful factors. If you want to know how Western they want to be, when the Poles switched governments, they immediately went, how should I put it, Milton Friedman. They went cold turkey. They cut all the subsidies. There was a lot of suffering. It took them like three, four years. And then they had a good capitalist economy. You get what I'm saying? They just bit the bullet. Nobody in Europe did that. They said, we got all this stuff to flush out of the system, right? And forget the bank accounts and forget all the rest of it. But in two years, three years, whatever, it'll happen. It couldn't happen in this country. We couldn't do that. So I'm just telling you how determined they were to, to free themselves of the old. Uh, and the Poles cannot help but see, now that they've come out of the closet, so to speak, come into the daylight, if you want to be part of the West by 1990s, one, there are many elements, many elements. One element is you accept the Jewish Holocaust narrative. <laughs> this is part of Western culture by the 90s. It's just, it's just part of it. So I'm sure the Poles are saying, like, you know, whatever. Uh, it's heavily Jewish. The Poles realized they cannot deny in the 1990s the reality of the Shoah, but they would like to get a little bit of attention for their narrative too. Um, but they're just happy to be free. But what is the narrative of the peoples of Eastern Europe, of the old kingdom of Poland? So here's the Poles have an interesting case. It's not the Baltic countries, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia. They had a terrible, shameful past, or morally confused, in the years of the war. They murdered a lot of Jews, as you know. 
with baseball bats and things like hatchets. Uh, and to this day, their national heroes of Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia include people who fought against Stalin, but also murdered their next door neighbor and threw babies headed against the wall like you read in the Bible. And so you come to the reality of Eastern Europe, let's go to it. And here's the main statue in, in Kiev of Khmelnytsky. Now you say, oh, Jews, how can you do Khmelnytsky? From the Ukrainian point of view, he delivered us from the Poles. You understand? And they say like this, and don't tell me your part. I want my narrative. I know about yours. I get it. I want my narrative. We have it in this country. Let's go to the next one. Don't we have big fights about Robert E. Lee? Okay? No, but I'm just saying a big deal. And Trump, the first thing he did in order to stick it to the PC guys, when this is Andrew Jackson to the Hermitage. Why? Because Obama wanted to take Andrew Jackson off the thing and replace it with uh, Harry Tubman or something like that. And he says, I don't believe in any of that kind of business. It's a, it's a cultural message, which to conservative Americans, they, they love it. And what's he saying? He said, I'm not denying that Andrew Jackson messed over the Indians. I'm not, I'm not the narrative. But that's not all he did. And in the overall picture, he was a great man. Again, the Southerners are saying we're not denying that Robert Lee was in favor of slavery. We acknowledge it, just like we acknowledge George Washington was in favor of slavery. But that's not the whole uptight of the man. Uptight, he did great things. And he also had faults. So the uh, Ukrainians will say it about Khmelnytsky. And the Lithuanians will say it about a guy, like I said before, who threw gasoline on a rabbi and burned him for fun. But he also fought against the Russians, and he uh, defended Lithuania. Or Latvia and Estonia, he was one of the Forest brothers in Estonia, say, uh, you know, fought against the Russians for five or ten years. Uh, and what do you do with that? It's a, it's a moral chaos. And the Poles come along, and they say, oh, yes, that didn't happen in Poland. We didn't have any statue like that. We didn't have any figures like that. We don't uh, uh, glorify anybody who in the war went and killed Jews. So why are you saying bad things about us? You understand? Um, now, by the way, little by little, a right wing will form in Poland. And about 12 years ago, 13 years ago, they made a statue of Domofsky in uh, Warsaw. Now, uh, Domofsky is not exactly the same thing as the guys I'm talking about, okay? But it was, uh, they're sending a message, right? That, that you can be an anti-Semitic guy and all the rest of it, but he was a great Polish patriot, like that. So it's tricky. In the 1990s, I told you before, Poland tries to be liberal to the Jews because they want to join the NATO and all the rest of it. And very interestingly, starting from the 1990s until today, Poland finds it in its, her interest to be friends with the state of Israel. A fellow Western country, Israel has done a lot of help. Look, they can help the new Poland. Nothing wrong with that. It's called business, right? And Israel, you know, does a lot of trade and all that kind of stuff with Poland. Poland will say, uh, look, you know, uh, we, we help you in the United Nations. They, they always vote for Israel, or very, very often. Uh, we help you in other areas. Why think bad things about us? Do you hear where I'm going? Um, Israel's the only country, all of whose leaders are Polish. I mean, all the prime ministers of Israel come from Poland, true or not. Right? He's from Poland, he's from Ukraine. He's from uh, Belarus, he's from Poland, he's from Poland, he's from Belarus, he's from uh, Poland, he's from Poland, and she's from Ukraine. Maybe I skipped somebody or something like that. I mean, is it, is it true or not? You know, no, I'll tell you something. There ain't too many countries where you read the prime minister was born in Schnepachlek, you know, 12 miles from, from, from Galicia. That's, 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 that's Israel. No, no, I'm trying to say like this. So a Pole immediately says like this, oh, you know. 
On the other hand, is a tricky, and I'll tell you why, and I just did some homework on this. Shamir, is he there somewhere? Yeah. Isaac Shamir, it's from Raj and I, and after he left office, he visited there, but I found that it's not Poland, it's now Belarus. That makes a difference. And he visited the town after he was there, and wait a second, he came with a bus, and they said, oh, it's a homeboy made good, you know, President Israel, but the mayor of the town, this is in the late 90s, the mayor of the city said like this, you're welcome to visit, but if you come to get your house back, you know, we're not going to do it. And he said, I've got my own country, you can take this whole village and shove it. The, uh, it was like a famous scene. But what does that mean? He said, I don't need your house. I got one of my own. That's the whole reason we made Israel. I don't need your house. See? Now, to be perfectly fair, that did not happen in the modern state of Poland. It happened in Belarus. So I just want to, want to be fair about it. Um, and so, uh, let's put it this way. It's, what's the essence of what I just told you that story? Everybody's happy. The Jews are in Israel, the Poles are in Poland. You get what I'm saying? F from both perspectives, yes, Ben-Gurion. All the Jews in Poland should get out of Poland and move to Israel. <laughs> you ask Pilsudski, all the Jews should get out of Poland and move to Israel. Everybody's happy. There's, there's nothing wrong with what I just said. You, right? You see what I'm saying? Nothing wrong with that. But the problem is that Poland, like all countries, and especially Poland, craves a heroic narrative. You want to be able to tell something good to your kids. And they have heroic episodes, okay? Do we have a thing over there? They made a new movie. It's uh, about the Warsaw Uprising, where they fought uh, against the Germans and were wiped out. You know, and I told you in Stalin of 44. Yeah, this is, that's, that's good enough. They made a new big, uh, no, no, I'm saying, there's a, you know, it's, a, it's a two years old, called Warsaw 44. Obviously, they made some dramatic thing about it. And, you know, they're entitled to that. Agreed? Right? Uh, it's fine. On the other hand, the behavior of the Poles towards the Jews, with exception, the behavior of the Poles towards the Jews suffering the show was not heroic. Now, there are exceptions, but overall, as we discussed, most people took the gas station. And many people told on the neighbor, because it was this easy to do. And many people, when they when, when the kicked out of the house, they went and, and took over the house. So it's not heroic. It's actually uh, whatever. And there are too doggone many Jews around in the world, and their children have 10,000 stories of Polish uh, being mamzerim. And it's gumming up the construction of a heroic narrative. If they would have killed all the Jews, then we could put our version out. But there are too many Jews out there that came from Poland, or their parents or grandparents came from Poland, and they got the stories there, what happened in the war. So it's hard to construct something heroic out of all that. So the Polish attitude, therefore, is, can't you Jews not flaunt all this bad Polish stuff? We don't deny it, but why can't you soft-pedal it? We're not the Ukrainians. We're not the Balts, you know, the Lithuanians. We didn't do anything to you in a war like that, right? We just weren't perhaps heroic, that's all. We're friends with Israel, even at the UN. Here's uh, Netanyahu in, 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 in Warsaw, you know? Uh, and by the way, it was up to Bibi for totally understandable reasons, as far as the Israeli government is concerned, they would like, for realpolitik reasons, to put this all away. Didn't Ben-Gurion do that without an hour? Yeah, he didn't forgive Germany, but he said, listen, we've got to be practical. Israel needs the money. Israel needs German support in many ways. So that's how it goes. You know, you've you, you, you got to be uh, practical. You, you understand? But the problem, of course, is that Jews are Jews. 
and they won't shut up about what they endure and remember. That's who we are. That's a problem. Get it? Uh, stuff happened, we talk about it. After all, this week is called Tisha B'Av. <laughs> we talk about it. That's who we are. Uh, this has played in Poland and in the Baltic into the hands of the right-wingers. They make the following case. How come everybody talks about the Jewish Holocaust and nobody talks about the Stalinist Holocaust? Okay. And the Jews say, how can you compare? They killed six million, they another you. I don't want to hear that. If you kill two million Poles, that's a lot. And if it was my uncle, that's a lot. What do you mean, how can you compare? Do you get it? I'm trying to show you how the other person feels. And uh, by the way, in the Baltics, the Lithuanians, they say, we damn well can compare. I bet you never heard of Black Ribbon Day, which is now spreading around the world. And this is the Molotov Ribbentrop Pact Day. And in Poland, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, Ukraine, all those places, it's, a, it's their tish above. And everybody wears a black ribbon, and they have ceremonies that's growing all the time. They created it, the right-wingers. And the Congress, they have a, a session and all the rest of it. And now that I told you, you can Google it, if you care to. And what's the point? We won our Yom HaShoah. We had one. Now the Jews say, how can you compare arresting a few thousand people? What do you mean, how can you compare? What, what, what does that mean? Ham does. Okay? And in Poland, the right-wing Poles perceived the success of right-wing cultural politics in the Baltic, which is next door, and now they're imitating it. Thoughtful Poles don't feel comfortable with this because, and I'm coming close to the end, so after what you heard from me, a thoughtful Pole will realize that anti-Semitism in Poland plays into the hands of whom? Do you get it? We're back to Catherine the Great. We're back to our Nicholas I. And it's always like that. If you hurt the image of Poland, oh, he loves this, correct? Because then he says, listen, and by the way, Putin is good to the Jews. He's good to the Jews. I just saw an interview with uh, Sharansky, Anatoly Natan Sharansky, who's now uh, leaving the post of head of the Sachnut. And the reporter asked him, he said, what do you think of Putin? And he said like this, I wear two hats. I was a member of the Jewish rights movement in Russia and a member of the human rights Russia. When I wear one hat, I praise Putin. When I wear the other hat, I, I condemn him. See? See, if you're Polish, there's no uh, deviation. He's a bad guy. And Russia is, if we know our history, always waiting for the right moment. So let the Poles, oh, on the contrary, pass more Holocaust laws. Do this. You'll just alienate all the opinion in the West. Then it'll be easier for us to move in. Not today, not tomorrow, like Kassner, great, we wait 20 years. So, these are the real politics that's going on behind the line. Uh, and then, of course, we come to the final point, which is recently Poland, under the influence of the right wing, passed a law prohibiting the United States to say anything bad about the Poles in the Holocaust. I didn't, that's not exactly true what I said. You see, you can't say the Poles participated in the Holocaust. You can't say the Poles... Um, set up concentration camps like in Holocaust, which is true. I've explained that to you, right? Those points are not incorrect. Left-wingers, especially in Israel, so you can't let them off. As you know, Bibi went to Poland and they put out a joint statement. Based on all the six talks I've given so far, let's take a look at this statement that was just issued by the Israeli government together with the Polish government. It says, over the last 30 years, the contacts between our countries have been based on a well-grounded, trusted understanding. Israel and Poland are devoted, long-term friends and partners, cooperating closely with each other 
international arena, but also as regards the memory and education of the Holocaust. So we're not denying it. The cooperation has been permeated by a spirit of mutual respect for the identity and historical sensitivity, including the most tragic periods of our history. Following the conversation between the Prime Minister Netanyahu and Morawiecki, whatever, Israel welcomes the decision of the Polish government to establish an official Polish group dedicated to dialogue with Israeli partners on historical issues relating to the Holocaust. So you put 10 historians or something like that, we will. It is obvious that the Holocaust was an unprecedented crime committed by Nazi Germany against the Jewish nation, including all Poles of Jewish origin. So we're not doing the Stalinist shtick over here, you know, right? It was the Jews, okay? Poland has also expressed the highest understanding of the significance of the Holocaust as the most tragic part of the Jewish national experience. Nothing I said so far is objectionable. We believe there's a common responsibility to conduct free research to promote understanding and preserve the memory and history of the Holocaust. We also agreed that Polish concentration camps is erroneous and diminishes the responsibility of Germans establishing these camps. Now, to us, it seems like a petty business. You know and I know if somebody said there were Polish concentration camps, you know it means the Germans set up in Poland. But that's not how the right-wingers have chosen it. They've chosen to say, you're saying that the Poles did it. So, Netanyahu said, fine, agreed. It's not the Polish concentration, it's the German concentration camps, which is nothing but the truth. I'll say it again, there were no Polish concentration camps. It's interesting. Go on. The wartime Polish government exile attempted to stop this activity by trying to raise awareness among the Western Allies systematic murder of Polish Jews. They did it one point or twice. We talked about that. I won't say this was their top of their agenda, but it was there. It was. We acknowledge and condemn every single act of cruelty against Jews perpetrated by Poles during World War II. That's a handsome uh, admission. He said there were bad things that Poles did. We're, we're not going to do like these other countries that everything that we did was, was okay. There were bad things that happened. We are honored to remember the many Poles, the righteous among nations, who risked their lives to save people. You know? We rejected, we rejected the actions aimed at blaming Poland, Polish nations as a whole for the atrocities committed by the Nazis. That's true. You can't blame the Poles or their collaborators of different nations. I'll say it again. In the concentration camp, we had Lithuanian guards, Latvian guards. You're not Polish. Unfortunately, the sad fact that some people, regardless of their religion or worldview, revealed their darkest side at the time. There were bad poles. And like I say, people took over the other guy's gas station and people at the other guy's house, and this happened. In some places, some places, the poles murdered the one next to them. It's true. You understand? They murdered this, they burned people. It happened. We acknowledge the fact that the structures of the Polish underground state, supervised by the government exile, create a mechanism of systematic help to support the Jewish people. Meaning the underground government, the underground movement, eventually set up something called Zagoda, which I don't have time to go into, which didn't do them much, but, they did, but at least officially they were out there to help. They helped, I mean, I shouldn't knock it. They were out to uh, help uh, in 42, 43, I think, um, some Jews. I would say they just helped like 5,000 Jews, which is out of 3 million, nothing, but I don't want to make light of it. And uh, Professor Shabir was here last time. He told me the, head, the lady who was the head of it was a Fabrenta Catholic, who was a big, listen to what I'm telling you, was a big anti-Semite, but not liking Jews is one thing, murdering and all the rest is something totally different. It's interesting, right? Anyway, uh, and his court sentenced Poles to collaborate with the German authority, including denouncing Jews. There were a few cases, very few, where you know, somebody gave away a Jew and the, and the local Polish underground court punished them. Okay, fine. 
So this is, this is what Israeli historians don't like. It's like you're taking a little thing and make a big thing out of it. We support free and open historical research on all aspects of the Holocaust and we conduct it without any fear of legal obstacles, including teachers, students, researchers, journalists, and with all certainty the survivors and their families who will not be subject to any legal charges, free speech, academic, no law can change that. Now the complaint is they said, but you can still make a civil suit. You understand? All right. Both governments condemn all forms of anti-Semitism, express their commitment to oppose any of its manifestations. Both governments express their rejection of anti-Polinism, it's anti-Semitism and anti-Polakism, right? So we're against that too. And against negative national stereotypes, governments of Poland call for its return to civil, struck dialogue and public discourse. I don't see any problem with this. Do you? And like I say, I hear, you know, if I, I get a little bit like, you know, whitewash, a little bit here and there. Not really. I mean, do you, as you see, in Israel, the OVA blew up. Uh, it's, a lot of it's political. Uh, they, the journalists rely on you that you don't read it. You see? Which is true. We don't have time. You have a cup of coffee, you look at the, <laughs> at the news, and then you go into your next item if you have a life. I think, based on what I've done over here, it's a pretty fair statement, don't you? And, you know, like I say, it's, and, and, and uh, I don't think BB has anything to apologize for. But if you read Haaretz and these other things, oh my goodness, the sky fell. But we live in a time of polarized dialogue. We sure do in America. So there's nothing that the Democrats can do right as far as Trump is concerned. There's nothing Trump can do right as far as the Democrats are concerned. It's such, it's such an environment. And in Israel, to a certain degree, it's like that as well. And you see, this is a part of it. Um, and so the recent law in Poland, the whole Bruah made a, uh, a, a big splash. But the truth is, it's late, we're out of time. Even there's a lot more to say. I'll just end with this thought. This uh, week is Tishabov on Sunday, of course. And at least we don't have to clear the Kinos with the Roman government <laughs> or the Babylonian government, okay? We don't have to put any joint statements. We can say whatever we want about them. But as far as Poland is concerned, I leave you with uh, what I hope is a complex uh, set of thoughts. And with that, I say good night. Fantastic presentation. I think I found two prime ministers didn't make the list. Yeah, I know, I didn't get them all. Barack and Omer. Huh? Barack and Omer. Yeah, I don't like Omer. <laughs> yeah, I, I know. That's it. That uh, picture you had about with the man that loved Eastern Europe, who was that? Me, what? Loved Eastern Europe. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidovidkatz.com.